Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank a couple sponsors that we were able to secure for this season, uh, season five of the Scuttlebutt. It's exciting to be able to get sponsors for this. Uh, we're really thankful for them. Uh, the first one, you might have heard them already, is D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. The Scuttlebutt's been pairing with D&D for quite some time. Uh, D&D began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D and D, autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, &D, for supporting this podcast. Uh, been wonderful collaborating with you, and uh, we're looking forward to, to being with you uh, all through season five here. We'd also like to thank a new sponsor for the Scuttlebutt, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. Tobacco-Free Adagio Health is dedicated to preventing and reducing tobacco use and increasing education about tobacco hazards and secondhand smoke. Of course, the best way to be tobacco-free is to never start. And we'll be sharing more about the many programs offered by Tobacco-Free Adagio Health in the future. You can check out more of their work at tobaccofree.adagiohealth. That's A-D-A-G-I-O health.org. Tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Org. Um, really excited to have sponsors on board uh, for the Scuttlebutt, and uh, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. Henry V, St. Crispin's Day speech, is one of my favorite speeches, um, and I and that that has always stuck with me. Um, um, the Marine Corps motto when I joined was "We're looking for a few good men," um, and then it changed to "The few, the proud." The few, the proud, and so. In his speech, he mentions, you know, we few, we we happy few, we band of brothers. And that line, it just, it, it started with me at 17 when I enlisted and all the way until I retired, uh, that there is this sense of, of us few and that we are going to go do this thing. Welcome everyone to the season five finale of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. If you've been a longtime viewer of The Scuttlebutt, you may have noticed a sort of a theme that I've developed over the course of the last five seasons, and that's veterans and art. Um, I'm an artist myself, a previous actor in a previous life, uh, so I'm always sort of interested in veterans who leave service and then decide to tell their story in a very artistic way, whether it be sculpting or poetry or painting, writing uh, or acting. Um, but looking back into history, I thought it would be an interesting uh, subject if we invited on a veteran who's an actor to talk specifically about his thoughts on the Shakespearean canon. I have some friends of mine who are Shakespeare savants, and uh, I invited them along for the conversation to talk about all of the veterans and military personnel that appear within the Shakespearean canon. This is a big, big canon. And I think you'd be really surprised about how many military members, veterans appear throughout all of Shakespeare's plays. And we get into some of these characters, some of the monologues that they have, what it means to them, you know, the way that they speak, is that universal? Does it still sound that way today? Why we are so fascinated with veteran stories? You know, this is hundreds of years ago that Shakespeare was um, producing these plays and writing them, uh, and, and we still do it today. So season five of The Scuttlebutt is wrapping up with this conversation. I hope that you'll enjoy it. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube, uh, and email me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. If you would like to see a particular military topic covered, or if you yourself would like to tell your story, we'd love to have you on the program. And uh, thank you for watching. We're going to come back with a brand new season in just a couple of weeks. Um, so we're looking forward to it, and we're looking forward to having you along for the ride. Enjoy the show. Well, hi, uh, I'm Owen Thompson. I'm so thrilled to be on the Scuttlebutt. Um, 
I am the co-host of a Shakespeare podcast called The Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick. And I'm happy to have my uh, co-creator and co-host Lisa Ann Goldsmith uh, by, by my virtual side today since I'm in New York City and she's uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm a director by trade, a theater director by trade. In a former life, I was an actor uh, and did plenty of Shakespeare as an actor. Um, also, I have two postgraduate degrees in, in classical dramatic literature. I'm currently the artistic director of the Schoolhouse Theater, the, the oldest professional theater in Westchester. And uh, that's, that's uh, me in a nutshell. Thank you, Owen. Th and thanks for joining us here on The Scuttlebutt. Lisa Ann, My welcome. Pleasure. Hi, I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. I am the other host uh, of the Bardcast at Shakespeare, You Dick. Owen and I have been friends for a million years. Um, I'm an actor, director, got my MFA in acting from Point Park Conservatory. I'm a teacher, um, and I've always been a Shakespeare nerd. So we decided to start this podcast during the pandemic uh, because we would just get on Skype and talk about Shakespeare anyway. So that's what well, happened. I'm so excited for the collaboration between uh, the Scuttlebutt and the, the Bardcast. Um, but we needed a veteran voice in the room. And Billy, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm honored to be here. I'm Billy Jenkins. Um, I'm a lifelong Pittsburgher. I, I just retired from the Marine Corps after 28 years uh, as a Sergeant Major. Um, I have my MFA in creative writing from Chatham University. Uh, and I have done uh, some acting here in the city as well as some writing. So I'm, I'm excited to, to be here to talk about Shakespeare and how I can uh, impart some of my, my uh, experiences into the mix. Awesome, thank you so much. So the reason for this, and for those of you who have watched the Scuttlebutt before or listened to us, uh, usually know that I like to sort of mix in veterans and art. I'm very intrigued by this idea of veterans who you know, leave service and then try to tell their stories through some level of art poetry, sculpting, writing, uh, acting. Uh, but that's what brought me back to um, Lisa Ann, who uh, I knew in my previous life as an actor and theater artist um, and a Shakespeare savant uh, to, to say, hey, let's dive into the canon a bit here. Let's, let's find some characters within that. And how we all know that uh, veterans have their own language. You know, it, it's, it's, it's something that civilians may not quite understand, um, but there is language within Shakespeare spoken by veterans. So I was very interested, in, hey, do they speak a universal language as far back as that? Um, so I decided to, to say, hey, let's, let's collaborate and dive into this, uh, into this conversation. So Lisa and to start us off and Owen, um, you guys looked into Shakespeare. You guys are both Shakespeare experts. Um, are there veterans in Shakespeare? Oh my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. so many. Okay. I started making a list and I'm sure I forgot, but I have Macbeth, Banquo, Iago, Othello, Brutus, Cassius, Mark Antony, Coriolanus, Albany, Cornwall, Edmund, Fortinbras, Alcibiades, Falstaff, Pistol, Titus Andronicus, you know, yeah. troops come back from the war and much ado about nothing. It's all <laughs> over Shakespeare. I mean, some of his Shakespeare's plays, I mean, many people will know this, so forgive me if I'm if I'm belaboring a point, but the Shakespeare plays are generally carved up into three main categories of comedies, histories, and tragedies. And the histories are, I mean, pretty much all, that's a third of his plays are all about the military yeah. and all about warfare. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, yes, he his plays are riddled with veterans. And this wasn't a theme that he created. This, this was in the Greeks, you know, within the Greek plays, a lot of that was about, about war and, and veterans as well. Is that right? Yeah. And it, I, mean, it's... I mean, let's be fair. You know, there's been war pretty much as long as there's been people, you know. And when Shakespeare was living, I mean, the Elizabethans lived through three main wars. There was the Elizabethan War, which was, you know, between England and Spain from 1585 to 1604. There was the Irish War, also called the Desmond Rebellions, you know, um, which was about control over, over the provinces, you know, religious reasons. Catholics in Ireland against the Protestant England. Um, and the other war in Ireland in the Elizabethan area was the Tyrone Rebellion, which was also known as the Nine Years' War. Again, Catholic Irish Earl of Tyrone fighting against the Protestant England's control of Ireland. So, so warfare was, was a commonplace. I mean, it was constantly happening. But it should be said that even though obviously Shakespeare didn't in, did, was not by any means the first playwright to have veterans appear in his plays, he did pretty much invent the history play as, uh, as a form. 
uh, there wasn't, I mean, he, one of his earliest plays was a huge success when he wrote the, the three parts of King Henry VI, which, mm-hmm. and, and then Richard III, which is the end of that series, which basically tells the story of the Wars of the Roses, the English Civil Wars of the 15th century. And Shakespeare popularized, uh, well, you know, it, it should be understood that Shakespeare and his contemporaries were really the first professional writers of plays uh, in, in English history, at least. Before that, it was sort of avocational, the kind of things that would happen at fairs and workmen would do what were called mystery plays. But the professional companies really began in the 1570s and 1580s when Shakespeare was getting going a little later than that. And he popularized these plays that were that told the story of English history, which was so concerned with warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy, you know, you had this very long career in the Marine Corps. Did you know anything about uh, the Shakespearean plays and the, and the way he's written veterans? So, uh, yes, uh, I was I was well aware of Shakespeare in, in undergrad. I studied uh, his plays, and so I was aware of it. But in my youth, I don't think I really appreciated it, um, even though I was, I was in undergrad while I was in the service, until I deployed, uh, and, and it, really, it really manifested itself in a different way um, in some of the speeches that I had I'd grown to love uh, and then actually, you know, towards the end of my career, uh, really being, um, being uh, it, it put upon me in a different way, if that makes sense. Totally. And, um, and let's dive into a particular character. Was there one that stuck out to you that sort of spoke to you uh, maybe near the beginning of your career that differently by the end? You know, I, I would honestly, I was just thinking about it. Uh, Henry V, St. Crispin's Day speech is one of my favorite speeches um and i and that that has always stuck with me um um, the marine corps motto when i joined was we're looking for a few good men um and then it changed to um um, the few the proud the few the proud and so in his speech he mentions you know we few we we happy few we band of brothers and that line it just, it, it started with me at 17 when I enlisted and all the way until I retired, uh, that there is this sense of, of us few and that we are going to go do this thing. So definitely that speech um, and his presentation of that speech to rouse his men. Let's dive into that a bit, Owen and Lisa, and that, that speech in particular. Can you kind of take us through that? Because I've seen, I've seen this done very well by as little as, you know, fifth graders performing mm-hmm. this speech and rousing a crowd um, sure. Where does this come to in, in, the, in the play? Well, um, and how does he how does he talk to his men? So it, it comes toward it comes sort of in the middle, but it's it's at the climax of the play is the Battle of Agincourt when the uh, when the English forces are are basically pinned down and they've been decimated by battles and by disease and there's hardly any of them and they're tired and they're sick and the French army is up upon them and the French army is huge and well rested they outnumber the English by thousands they have cavalry which the English don't and the 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 battle is coming that morning and there are people that are in fact freaking out on the English side and Henry the fifth the king uh, gives this rousing speech where he basically I mean the point basically is, we're, you know, there are, there are just a handful of us and anybody that wants to leave, you leave because the fewer of us, the better, the more, the fewer of us there are, the more glory there is to be had. And it, and yes, as, as has been quoted, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And, you know, it's one of, it's a famously, famously rousing speech. And even though I, I have never served and thank you for your service, by the way, I will say that the thing that probably turned me on to Shakespeare as a child uh, was seeing the Olivier, the Laurence Olivier film of this play and hearing him speak that speech uh, certainly roused me. And, inst- and that was what set me on the Shakespeare path. Lisa Ann, I've, I've watched you on stage. And I've been part of your classes in dissecting a Shakespeare <laughs> monologue. This is one of the most famous ones, obviously. Yeah, um, and we can dive into some, some more more obscure uh, uh, characters. Uh, but what does this speech mean to you? How do you interpret it? So, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, the, the there were so many so many kings led their armies into battle, right? Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth, Henry the Sixth, Richard the Third, Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth, right? That their job was specifically to get 
their their people roused, right? And I love how in this speech he talks about um, imitate the action of the tiger, right? Oh yeah, that's once right. more into the breach, dear friends, once right. more. Right. You know, he he tells them to you know dis like I think the line is disguise fair nature with hard favored rage. You know, mm -hmm. so he's telling them to you know to and and basically Billy isn't this what they do? You know, which is one of the reasons that PTSD exists is that, you know, they they tell you in the military to erase all emotion. Right. And that's basically what he's telling his troops in this speech, you know, be the tiger, get rid of the emotion, just find the rage. But because Shakespeare is Shakespeare and it's never any one thing that the play is really, really nuanced. Uh, and there, in the, the 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 scenes that happen before the Battle of Agincourt, the night before, there's a couple of scenes where Henry is in disguise and he's wandering the camp and listening in to to what the soldiers are saying, and even he in disguise takes takes part in a couple of conversations, and you know, I mean, it's the play is not all rah rah, let's go get them. There's a speech, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll quote it to you from a, a, a common soldier that is speaking to the king, not knowing that he's the king and arguing, uh, saying that like the king is responsible for the, you know, the, the deaths of his men. And what he says is this, and it's, it's, it's really interesting in the context of the rest of the play. He says, but if the cause be not good, the king himself hath a heavy reckoning to make when all those legs and arms and heads chopped off in battle shall join together at the latter day and cry all, we died in such a place, some swearing, some crying for a surgeon, some upon their wives left poor behind them, some upon the debts they owe, some upon their children rawly left. I am afeard there are few die well that die in a battle, for how can they char charitably dispose of anything when blood is their argument? Now, if these men do not die well, it will be a black matter for the king that led them to it, whom to a disobey were against all proportion of subjection. So it's a really, really nuanced play. That's interesting right. because we were just talking before we started recording, Billy, about the 90%. The 90% of the time you spend in service uh, you know, your 10% is outside the wire, your 90% is in the wire, and it's this talking, it's this brotherly bonding that happens that Shakespeare had this insight in. And how did he have that? How, how did he know to write something so like nuanced, so, so insightful to what the soldiers are feeling at camp before a battle? Well, he was surrounded by veterans his entire life, mm -hmm. you know? There are, there are some that, that, because you know we have what some people call the, the missing years or the lost years, mm -hmm. because Shakespeare leaves, Strat we have records of Shakespeare as a very young man in Stratford-upon-Avon, and then the records pick him up again in London about, I guess, seven, seven or eight years after that, but there's a gap, a, a large gap when he's a young man, and some people think that he must have spent at least some of that time soldiering, because he does show an intimate knowledge of the workings of the military and what it is to be in a battle. Um, and, and yet there's no proof of that, of course, but that some people have, have uh, speculated that. Billy, do you feel as a veteran that veteran actors have sort of a leg up if they're performing Shakespeare as these characters that they sort of understand this, this terminology more? I, you know, it's a great question. I, I would, say that there's definitely there's definitely an insight um that a veteran would bring to to a role uh like henry or or any of uh the roles that that lisa and uh brought up um better i think is subjective but but to have felt those things to have been to have listened to that saint christmas day speech and then to have given my own version of it in a given situation um i think would would absolutely lend itself to that character if I was you know given the opportunity to, to portray it or any veteran would it just I think is it just comes with I'm a, I'm a father and so playing a father there would there would just be nuances that I could not escape from my experiences you know I certainly relate to that I don't think I could play a father as well before I had my daughter right that I do now no. Yeah, right. You know, the thing that really amazes me, though, about Shakespeare is how, you know, before post-traumatic stress disorder was a thing, 
You know, he gets it so perfectly, right? Like when in Henry the Fourth Part One, when Lady Percy comes in, you know, she she basically asks Hotspur, you know, she says, Oh my good lord, why are you thus alone? Tell me, sweet lord, what is that takes from thee thy stomach pleasure and thy golden sleep? Why dost thou bend thine eyes upon the earth and start so often when thou sittest alone? And it just it goes on, you know, and she, she he talks about prisoners ransom and soldiers slain. I mean, that is like a perfect description of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Well, look at the look at the character of Macbeth, yeah. um, who has gotten where he's gotten not only by taking part in some pretty hard. I mean, the first thing we hear about him is a description of how he, in battle, ripped a man apart from his navel to his groin. Um, you know, literally, that's the first thing we hear about him. And then, of course, he commits horrible murders. Mm-hmm. But I mean. You know, he uh, he he experiences trauma. He has he has distressing recollections of the event. He has flashbacks and nightmares. He has uh, he sees things. He sees daggers and ghosts. Uh, And, you know, he has has every every symptom of uh, he experiences horrible sleeplessness. Right. I mean, it's clear that Macbeth is suffering from PTSD. Paranoia. Absolutely. Isolation. Go ahead, Owen. I was, well, oh, no, go go ahead. I was just going to say there's so many characters throughout all of the plays mm-hmm. that are dealing with coming back from the military, mm-hmm. you know, and how it affects them and how it affects their family members. Mm-hmm. It's a, such a very different society from what we live in now, where less than one half of 1% of, of civilians in America serve in the military. So civilians, there we always talk about the military-civilian divide here on the podcast, and back then, there there really wasn't much of one. It was almost everyone served. It seemed, uh, you know, if you were young and able-bodied, you probably served in some way. So the the universal language we keep bringing up is was probably much more spread throughout society than it is today. Sure, and and also it's one thing that needs to be understood is that there was no standing army. Like the country didn't have a standing army until 1660. So before that, it was either the the king would call, the king or queen could call, uh, you know, lords who were vassals uh, to, you know, bring to bring certain troops to bear or they would do it themselves. So either that they would send recruiting officers to recruit common folk and anyone between, I think, 16 and 60 was eligible. And if if in times of need, there was something called impressment, where people were forced into servitude in the army. But also, these, by and large, uh, the, the lower caste of people were not particularly well trained. You know, they were they were conscripted. They were given a uniform, sometimes made to pay for the uniform, and then they were expected to learn how to fight, like in the middle of a battle. Not the so. best place. Not the no, best place to learn. No, to it yeah. really isn't. And I, and I would argue, you know, um, that in in this era, you know, you, you talk, you think about time and the time it would take to leave your your burg and travel to the encampment and then travel to a battle and then then come home. Whereas today, you're you could be in country on Monday, in you know in a in a a secondary base on Tuesday and then back in your own bed on Wednesday. And there's, there's, there's a time, there's a time lapse that that era of soldier or writer um, could explore those, those feelings or those, those thoughts. Whereas today it's, and even now that, you know, where we, we watched what's going on in Europe now uh, it's, it's instantaneous and there's no, there's no chance to digest. You know, and then it's just image over image, and we already have forgotten what we saw yesterday because there are new images. Whereas in these plays, there there was there was an understanding that this could have been months, if not years, um, that they didn't see their loved ones um, or before they came home to deal with these these emotions. Oh, that's such an interesting take. The reporting on on war and battles that these plays that Shakespeare wrote was almost a reporting in a way on the battles that had taken place. If you think about it, uh, how long after these these battles, you know, you say War of the Roses, that you know Shakespeare was reporting on this and presenting it to to the people, um, and then portraying these characters and trying to create this fictionalized take on what had transpired. Um, boy, that's an interesting 
dichotomy between the two uh, today and, and back then. One, one reason that Shakespeare, uh, obviously there was, it was local interest since it was English civil wars that Shakespeare is writing about in those plays, uh, but he also visits other civil wars in, in other history plays, but he's always very careful to portray wars that are somewhat in the past because to portray anything in the present would be very dangerous politically. Mm -hmm. In, in fact, he wrote one play, Richard II, which is about Richard II being deposed. And uh, the Earl of Essex, who was one of Elizabeth's favorites, when he was about to stage a rebellion, he actually paid Shakespeare's company to put that play on on an afternoon because it was a play that sort of could be read as favoring toppling a king. And he was about to try to do that. So Shakespeare's company actually got in some hot water over that issue, and they never did anything like it ever again, because it was very, very dangerous to do anything that was that could even be imagined to be critical of the ruling dynasty. Yeah, off with their head. Yeah. Literally so. at a moment's notice. Mm hmm. A lot of the women that were in the Shakespeare canon that are in the Shakespeare canon, um, you know, obviously not necessarily veterans um but do any of them speak that language lisa ann i mean i i would think the woman that's probably understands the language of the military best is cleopatra you know yeah because she's had so much experience and because she because she's such a badass right like you know she you know she's taken her lands right and and not to mention the fact that you know her lover is one of the greatest soldiers of all time right so um i would think her and then of course i mean you have to consider the women in the history's plays just because they're completely surrounded by it you know Ma queen margaret another yeah. you know enormous badass right um well yeah, Queen Margaret basically takes over the yeah. rule of, of, of because her husband is insane and incapable. So she more or less becomes the general of his armies. That's right. And also, I would mention Volumnia in uh, Cor oh, Coriolanus yeah. as well. Coriolanus's mother, because that play is such, I mean, Coriolanus is maybe the, the prime military figure in all of Shakespeare yeah, and it's he it, he when he when he needs to back off it's his mother that talks him out of it and uh, his uh, out of attacking and it's his mother that really understands military matters enough to do so why would you say that that's the main military Play. Well, it's I, I, you know, I, I don't know that it's the main military play because some but it might be the one that is not based on recent English history because Coriolanus is such a is defined by his status as a soldier in a way that most Shakespearean protagonists are are not even Henry V, who's a great warrior, is still like has other sides to his character. Uh, we see him in so many plays from the time that he's Prince Hal to the time that he's Henry V. So, uh, you know, Othello is a general, for instance, but it's not his soldiership that is the focus of that play. Uh, Macbeth is a, a general as well, and it's a little more pronounced in that play, but in Coriolanus, it's all about his military prowess. Yeah, because even Brutus and Cassius and Mark <clears throat> Antony are statesmen besides being so. Right. Well, and, and so is Coriolanus, but reluctantly. Right, right. As was Bill Titus Andronicus. Right. And a lot of these are really bloody plays, just as a side note, it's like, like Coriolanus, Titus, uh, Macbeth, like all of them, like there's a fair bit of violence that they've incorporated into. Oh yeah. Them. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Even King Lear, I, you know. Um, Billy, uh, in, your, in your time with the Shakespeare canon, the characters and the plays that you've read, what differences do you find uh, between the, the way he's written veterans and the way that you have experienced it in your, in your uh, career? Um, I mean, I, I, would, I would say initially that the, the similarities are the constraints that, that we face. Um, you know, the overarching um, uh, off with their head. Um, and in today's world, like, you know, what that means it translates into, into today's society. Um, I, I think the differences would be specifically the fact that, that in my experience, most of, say, the, the, the two theaters of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, there were a great number of active duty personnel 
who who for those who don't know you know they, they go away and they they serve 365 you know on a base and then they go and fight and then the other half of the reserve community or the guard community mm-hmm. who are firemen or teachers or bankers and then get called up to go serve um where i would say uh in a, in a, in a, a large number of his plays you see the returning soldier um and that would be the reserve community where we come home and maybe the PTSD, Lisa Ann, that you speak about, when we come home, you know, we, we, are, we are in a vacuum because our friends live in Allentown or Philadelphia and you don't get to interact with them on a daily basis. And then you become a bull in a China shop. And so, you know, there are definitely the similarities that, that Owen, like you said, it, it would lend itself to, to the belief that he had served to be so uh, understanding of the soldier's plate. Um, that being said, as I said earlier, with, with the influx of information that I've lived through in my time, uh, that's the biggest difference, that uh, there's, lo- there's, there's maybe less plotting. Obviously, it's a play, uh, but there's less time to plot because information travels so fast mm-hmm. in today's world. Were, were soldiers uh, celebrated in Shakespeare's time? Yeah. Oh, the, the, the milit- military pro- military exploits and military triumphs were as were like the highest, the most highly honored thing there was really. So to be to be a great soldier uh, was was to you know to win great fame and renown. Uh, of course, it, it was different for noble people than it was for you know uh, the the poor people who were lucky if they. I mean, payment was not really a thing. There were no pensions or anything like that. So if you served for a long amount of time and were uh, disabled in, in combat, you know, you, you better hope that you're, you have a family that can take care of you because, you know, the, you can forget the government doing so because the government doesn't care. The government barely, the government is barely that, exists. Is that, is that Shakespeare or is that now? I, I wasn't yeah. sure. <laughs> um, same, 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 same. Yeah. Same, same. yeah. And yeah. also there was just, you know, because of that, there was a huge, um, patriotic appeal of theater at the time, right? Like, you know, during the late Elizabethan and early Stuart periods, like some of the main interest for playwrights in the audiences centered around, you know, hostility to Spain and Catholicism, you know, warnings against civil war and praise of individual heroes and not just Shakespeare, you know, uh, Marlowe and and, uh, Lodge and so many other people were writing about war and battle at that time. Probably the, I mean, the the two plays that really were the most successful plays before Shakespeare started writing are both extremely violent plays. Well, really kind of three, because one has a sequel. The Spanish tragedy, which Mm -hmm. is mostly just blood and guts. But um, Christopher Marlowe, who was the superstar playwright before Shakespeare, that Shakespeare emulated early in his career, his first great success was a play called Tamburlaine, Mm -hmm. which was about, and then he wrote a sequel, Tamburlaine Part Two, which is about a a, a semi-fictional, sort of based on a, a guy, but anyway, who who just does nothing but conquer people like it's so much that it gets a little repetitive in, in those plays. <laughs> um, I've actually seen it done and it's after all, it's like, how many kingdoms have you taken over? Well, okay. Um, so yeah, conquest and, and military triumph was extremely popular. Why do you think we uh, as a society still want to hear veteran stories? Why is that spanned from Greek till now. Uh, what is it about those stories that really capture us? Well, I almost hesitate to answer that question yeah. since I'm since I'm not a veteran. It seems but it seems to me that it's that it, it's so it, it it's so it's it, it's so visceral and so important and has such a such an effect on the world no matter who you are that it's always going to be and 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 the plight of people who face combat and the heroism and the the, the defeats and the triumphs are are obviously dramatic and fascinating and that's always going to be so I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we if we as a species insist on creating war and sending our our people into battle it's always going to be a part of who we are right Mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are who are move who are going forward to protect us those of us who are at home right well they're the the, ones who are in danger they're the ones the people 
the people who take these risks and put themselves in the way of, of mortal peril all the time to, you know, def either and hopefully uh, to defend their countries or in some cases in the in the interest of conquering other countries. Um, it, it, how can it not be interesting? It can be horrifying, but it's not boring. Mm -hmm. Billy, uh, <laughs> any thoughts on that? Those are interesting. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, and great responses. I, I, I was, I was trying to remember myself before joining. Um, I think that stories about soldierly um, feats, you know, we we we're, we're we're taught them at such a young age, um, and I think that they might they they speak to to us as humans about standing up for something, um, and mainly standing up in the defense of those who can't defend themselves. Um, and then and there's definitely a part of me that, that believes that it's, it's just, it just comes with the recruitment that if you go and do this thing, when you come home, you'll be revered. Um, because, you know, preparing for, for war is like I said, it, it's not war, you know, and um, for my, for my, my friends who have, who didn't go overseas or didn't serve in combat, you know, there's, there's this anxiety in this, this, um, perception that they haven't actually served because they didn't serve in combat. But for those who have, it's, it's not a thing that you, you want to do once you've done it, um, because it just changes you. So I think that, you know, I think that societies, you know, tell these stories um, in a way to make the wars okay to to a certain extent. Um, um, because, uh, and it always comes to me is people will say, I support the soldier and not the war. Um, but as a soldier, you know, that sometimes that's hard to, to separate, you know, um, um, because it, it's, you know, I, I get that you support, say what I did, um, but not the cause that I, I, I was there for. And so sometimes that can be, you know, it can be sort of a Rubik's cube. You have to, you have to dissect. Um, um, but I think that's why we, we like to hear the stories. And also because so few, like you said, so few do go um, that people just want to know. And it leads then down to that question, that one question that, I would argue almost every vet has been asked, you know, um, uh, that that we we wait for someone to ask and, and you never want to be asked. And so I think that that's it's the, the unknown that people are searching for. Yeah. And, and I think I think that that we as people, those of us that don't serve. Right. We're trying to find some sort of like common understanding of the experiences of like of what we ask our soldiers to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Some who volunteer to do that, you know what they go through and how they experience reintegrating into civilian life. Right. You know, that's something that we, we have no idea about because we haven't been there. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's, and in, it's not, I mean, obviously I know that 99.9% .9 of the time is not this, but when it does come to combat, and that kind of thing. It's it's so unimaginable for anyone that hasn't done it. I remember watching, for instance, Band of Brothers, that that the HBO television program, and and you know I going over and I cannot I cannot imagine myself really being in that. I would just I would just collapse. I would die on the spot, you know. So it's so it's so extraordinary to those of us who haven't been there that it's it's fascinating to us, mm -hmm. of course. It is fascinating to us, and you know just. You know, like the sim, and it's not simple, of course, it's completely complicated, but like the simple act of, you know, your job maybe being to kill somebody else that you don't know just because of where they come from or where they live or what religion they are. That's just mind blowing mm -hmm. to somebody that's never had to do that. Right. Like it just does not compute, certainly to me. Mm -hmm. And Bill, well, you know, back I'm sorry, go ahead. Billy, to go back Hi, to what, what you were saying, I just want to make sure that that our audience knows is that the question that you're saying that you that veterans don't want to be asked, but they're waiting for someone to ask. 
Can you, can you clarify what question that is? And we've done a lot of different discussions on the podcast about what can you and what should you ask a veteran? Um, so I just want to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. Uh, yeah, it would, it would be exactly what Lisa Ann just said. Um, have, you, have you done what 99% of the people haven't done, but is said mm-hmm. to be okay for you to do in this, in this right. bubble? Are you, have you done that? And, right. and so, you know, it's, 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 I, and I don't want to speak for every veteran, but it's as personal a question as you can be asked because Absolutely. of what, what that means for someone else, you know, um, and, and the implications that it was that you were courageous or just lucky or just fell or tripped or, and, and, and those questions not at, at returning veterans. And so to ask someone that question, you know, it's, a, it's akin to, to asking, I think, anyone their, their most, you know, guarded secret. Totally. And we have, uh, we have at the VBC, we have something called the Oral History Project. And recently we collaborated with Point Park University students to go out and interview veterans. Um, and it's something that I, I was, was talking to Billy before we started recording today is that, you know, several years ago, I had no idea how to talk to a veteran. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to ask. Um, and you're worried about saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong thing. And so that's something that I've tried to layer into the podcast of, hey, whenever you talk to a veteran, it's very much just about talking to them about their job. You know, mm-hmm. what job did you do? What were you trained to do? You know, when you were deployed, what was a given day like? Um, you can, you can pull in a lot of stories without asking that question or right. a couple other questions that are akin to that, that it's just like, you don't ask that, you know? And, you know, and to put it, no, to, to, to piggyback off that and to put it into this realm, it's, it's a lot like when an actor, um, when someone says, you know, well, have you, are, what movie are you in? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm doing plays now. And they're like, oh, okay. And you're like, wait a minute, like, yeah. what's wrong with doing plays? Um, um, and so they, you know, they, everyone wants to know about your connection to Denzel. Um, and there's nothing wrong at all with any, any part of the spectrum of, of acting or directing or writing. Um, but you can see the letdown in their, in their face, you mm-hmm. know, when, when you tell them, well, I'm, I'm not, I haven't acted this year or I haven't written anything this year. And then, oh, okay. You know, and then you multiply that by like, you know, death and and it's, and then you multiply that by everyone asking you. And it just, you know, it becomes, it becomes a lot. If we can take one step further in this podcast of the people that listen to it to know not to ask that particular question, but yeah. maybe ask, how did you enlist? Um, mm. Replace that. That's probably the better one. But Billy, you do come from a military family. Is that right? I, I do. My father was in the, the military. Uh, and then to that point, my, my mother was a, a Catholic nun for for uh, 13 years before leaving. Um, so it was it was it was very much the Citadel in my house growing up. Just um, about. So going to the Marines was easy. Oh, it was it was like, woo! thank goodness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was it was for me, it was it was serving serving was just what i was going to do mm-hmm. you know even as a firefighter you know like even as a right. fireman and the number of years that you've served you didn't just yeah. you know do your your term and then and then leave there was something that kept you within it kept you uh going in your service why did you decide to extend your career as long as you did you know um that's a great question i i, I can i could argue that, that, you know, I, they kept promoting me, <laughs> smarter people kept leaving. And so I was left holding the, the bag. Um, but on the flip would be, um, and, and maybe again, to, to bring it back into, into acting or, you know, it was, it was being able to um, truly capture an aha moment in a, in a young Marine, uh, teaching them um, something that, that you forgot about. Um, seeing them grow. Um, and towards the end of my career, the last few years, um, trying to impart my, my, my knowledge on them so that they could then go and do the same things um, was what kept me in um, and what really kept me coming back um, to be with them. And to that point, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I, I went to Iraq in 03 and then again in 06. And I, I always try to remind people that um, that 
America in 2002 was a far different place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a lot like, it was a lot like Pittsburgh after a, a Super Bowl win. Everybody, everybody had a connection. Absolutely. And, and so I, I, and I wrote a story. I remember sitting in my, my bunk in Kuwait the night before the invasion and being like, whoa, how did this happen? Like, I don't even remember getting here and now I'm here. Uh, but I, I could say that I didn't necessarily serve for the president or for, um, for any other reason than the Marines in my tent, you know, to be with them, um, to see it through for them. Um, and so that's what kept me there and what kept me in for so long. I just talked with a veteran, a Vietnam veteran yesterday who straight up said, when we were over there in Vietnam, we were not fighting for our president, our country, mm-hmm. our freedom. We were fighting for each other. That's mm-hmm. why we were there. And that's the brotherhood, looping it back to Shakespeare. Yeah. That's the brotherhood that they that that I think really comes through mm-hmm. in in any of the plays that I've I've seen that involve veterans, military members, active service, whatever in, in Shakespeare, is there's a brotherhood. There's something they understand about each other um, that that relates. Uh, that you know, we try to, to find. Uh, I think. Well, I, I think Billy. Let me ask you that. It seems to me that that because that is the oath that you take, right? Mm-hmm. To protect each other against you know against all cost. Mm-hmm. No man behind. No man left. Behind. No, it, it is, and and you know, it's 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 a type of it's a type of relationship, you know, where where you you. And I think we all have someone in our life where you have you've you've bared your soul to this these people, mm-hmm. and they've seen you at your most vulnerable. They've seen you at your most broken, um, and they accept you um, because you've seen them at that moment. Um, and then there's this thing coming at you, um, um, and it's it's irreplaceable that you know that getting through a moment, uh, uh, getting through a, a near near death experience with someone. Um, and no matter what they come out at the other end or how they, how their lives or your lives change um, after that, it goes back to me to that speech is, you know, um, 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 what does he say? Um, be he ne'er so vile, he will uh, always be my brother. Um, because you always have that moments or those moments strung together um, in that oath. To, to, to lighten the mood, yeah. we always talk about sort of gallows humor on the scuttlebutt. Um, and I wanted to dive into some gallows humor because that's sort of, Billy, what you're relating to is, is, is that you get back from these really harrowing experiences and then you're drawn together more and then there has to be a levity. There has to be something oh. that, yeah, like you guys are cracking jokes, making jokes about things that people like civil, you know, civilians would be like, oh my God, why would you make a joke about that? Um, but Shakespeare does this in all the time, it seems. And I, I figured, oh, and I, I don't know if you have any uh, um, examples of this, of this sort of gallows humor amongst soldiers. Well, I can, I'll, I'll say this. Um, the, the most famous comic creation probably that Shakespeare ever invented is Sir John Falstaff. Yep. And he's a soldier. Um, you know, it's, it's, he's the big fat, you know, comic character. And yet there are some very serious moments that he has as well. Um, and he, it's his relationship with, uh, with, with Prince Hal wow. that sort of molds Prince Hal into becoming Henry V later on. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's the, the, the two, the two plays that feature him most are, although he appears elsewhere, uh, are Henry the fourth part one and Henry the fourth part two. Yep. And we, we just see him be, he's the wittiest, funniest character. He's, he's a coward. He's, he's every, there's every, he, everything is negative about Falstaff and yet you love him anyway. He's, he's a, a coward. He's a drunk. He's a thief. He actually, he presses people into service uh, for, you know, he, that impressment that we talked about, he's a recruiting officer and he takes bribes from them in order to let them get away with it and then presses other people and, and is very cavalier about how they're just going to be cannon fodder. And yet he's also this incredibly witty, incredibly smart and even wise person who we, we come to love and has become, you know, one of the greatest, most popular characters that, Shakespeare, that even Shakespeare ever created. There are other places in Shakespeare where he, you know, he, not necessarily black humor, but he uses humor about military, like in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, right? And I don't remember 
I don't remember exactly who says it, but somebody says that I may that I may truly say with the hook-nosed fellow of Rome, I came, I saw, and overcame, right? Which is mm-hmm. funny. Yep. Well, and, and he often has comic. I mean, Parole's in All's Well That Ends Well, right. Don Armado in Love's Labor is Lost. He will often choose soldiers as comic characters. So you see it throughout. throughout. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really interesting choice to, to go with the soldiers uh, as his comic relief. You, mm-hmm. You'd think it'd be the other way around. Although, to be fair, also his his greatest his greatest villain Iago is also a soldier, and That's it's right. also you know it's it's interesting to note in terms of the soldier characters in Shakespeare because we talk about Henry V and we talk about Coriolanus, there's a difference between career soldiers uh, and people who are you know kings or emperors or what have you statesmen that assume the mantle of soldier. It's easy enough for although you know Henry V was a great warrior and in real life actually died in the field. Um, and actually not in battle, but he was on a campaign. Um, but it's easy enough for a king or a statesman to, to assume the role of soldier and then cast it off. But somebody like Iago is, a, is just a career soldier. I mean, he's basically a corporal, you know, and it, there are a handful. So the differences between a, a nobleman and a commoner who are in the military in Shakespeare is a really important distinction, I think. You know, it really wasn't until this conversation today that I that I'm thinking that that Shakespeare has so many shades of the soldiers that are within his plays. You really get a, a, a you know, all across the spectrum, across yeah, the canon. Jobs, ranks, all of it. Yeah. Well, that's Shakespeare for you. You know, I mean, Shakespeare presented the, the a real panoply of human beings and he was not interested in having a stock character who's a soldier, a stock character who's a king. They're, the kings are all different. The soldiers are all different, just like people in life are. And I'll, and I'll say this, I was thinking about this as we're talking about whether or not Shakespeare actually served as a soldier himself, which is, you know, possible, but he certainly was never a teenage girl and yet he wrote Juliet. That's right. So, but he also, yeah. like, he has a, there's a quote in Julius Caesar, which I think makes me feel like that's, this is what Shakespeare thinks about war. And it goes, uh, war gives the right to the conquerors to impose any condition they please upon the vanquished. Hmm. Well, Shakespeare's all, lays it all, out there, right? he's always concerned with power, isn't he? He's always concerned with the use of power, political power, military power, yeah. personal power, always, always. Right. And he also says in Henry the Sixth, Part Three, it's war's prize to take all vantage, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We already mentioned St. Crispin as one of the more well-known. Um, for someone who's listening to the podcast, it's like, I'd like to try my hand. I'm a veteran. I, you know, I, I like acting. I'd like to try my hand at a character. Uh, can we throw a couple of uh, a couple soliloquies, monologues their way? Uh, well, I would say wow. possibly uh, Mark Antony uh, over the wow. body of Julius Caesar. That's exactly uh, what I was going to say. That, uh, that when he, you know, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding per- piece of earth that I am meek and gentle with these butchers, that talks a lot about, uh, you know, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war yeah. is from that speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, that's basically a speech of him saying, these mother and my French have murdered this man and now they have unleashed hell. And it is going, and everyone is going to pay for it, and we're, and it's going to be bad. <laughs> and and Macbeth, I think, you know, he says all that stuff is, you know, especially in the last act. Hang out our banners on the outward walls. Blow wind, come rack. At least we'll die with harness on our back. You know. Mm-hmm. Richard the, Richard the Third has a stirring speech to his troops before uh, before the the final battle uh, in that play. Uh, it's it rings a little hollow because Richard the Third is such a villain. Uh, so it, it it doesn't have the same inspiring uh, effect that say Henry V's does, but it's still a good speech. Why was theater such a great way to portray veteran stories? We at VBC, we just you know we we interview veterans, we talk to them about their story, we pretty much sit down and talk and just have a one on one, or they come into a room and they tell everyone their story. We ask them questions, but what is it different about theater? I understand the drama aspect, but. There's a presentation. There's a there's this thing that that suddenly it becomes a little bit different. I think it gives us maybe sort of a a, a window into what they went through. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think it helps us to understand better what it feels like to be in that situation. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be in the middle of a battle, right? And even if I'm seeing it on stage and, you know, and the thing about Shakespeare is that because at the time, it's not like they could, you know, they they couldn't theatrically represent war on stage, right? Like in a bunch of the plays, he asks the the audience to use their imagination or it's going to be three guys with swords on stage, right? But even so, you know, to watch somebody having a broadsword fight, to hear that sound gives us kind of a window into what that might be like, I think. Yeah, and war stories are, I mean, it's not, I mean, I think theater is a great place to deal with uh, with war and veterans issues, but, you know, th- let's not discount movies. I mean, there are so many great movies that, that take, that are military in nature, and it can be, it doesn't necessarily even have to be about warfare itself. I mean, of course, you think of movies like Saving Private Ryan and that kind of thing, but there are also plays and movies like uh, A Few Good Men, or a, a soldier's play, which I'm actually working on right now, um, which t- which tell stories about the military that don't involve any mm-hmm. combat whatsoever, and yet they really give you a, a, an intimate look at what the relationship, it, it, you know, the li- the military life and relationships are. And in theater, particularly, there's an intimacy because you're in the room with these people. Um, this is again not to discount film, which I think does a great job of it as well, or can. Um, but telling these stories when you're you're present, uh, I think, makes a difference. And there's there's plenty of people that are using theater to help veterans get through their PTSD. Like there's that one guy, um, uh, Stefan Wolfert, who was a U.S. Army veteran who has a one man show called Cry Havoc. Uh, and he when he was in when he got into he I think he was like 24 23 or 24 uh when he was first in the army and he he had seen his best friend fatally wounded in a military training exercise and so because that screwed his brain up so badly he went to Richard III and in Shakespeare's words he kind of heard an echo of his own experience right mm-hmm. and um, so he does this. This was his play was originally uh, produced by the off Broadway company Bedlam. But there's other people that do that, too. Right. He says, which I love about this, he says that that the military does a miserable job of preparing soldiers for re-entry into society between tours of duty and when their military service is done. He I'm says, sorry, I'm laughing because Billy's face. He's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, right, like they make a point of recruiting young men and women mm-hmm. at a malleable age. They wire them for war and then they don't unwire them or decruit them before they dump them back into their home communities. Right. Mm-hmm. So so that helped him. But there's also um, there's a, a, a guy, Zach Starr, who's a Navy veteran and founder of Vet Connect. And he worked with Kevin McClatchy, who is a faculty member at uh, Ohio State University's Department of Theater. Uh, McClatchy and a group of MFA students also interested in like delving into exploring the impact of war, partnered with the local veterans community community and they launched uh, some sets of Shakespeare workshops, one for veterans and active duty personnel, but also another for family members and counselors of vets and service members. So, you know, a way of, of opening them up and coming at it from both sides, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the Royal Shakespeare's Company Educational Training Program has worked with veterans before. You know, there's a, a Wisconsin-based group dedicated to working with veterans that for 10 weeks, the veterans and service members met on Tuesdays and the family members and caregivers met on Thursday, you know, and they began with experimenting with reading passages, you know, reciting passages from Shakespeare because um, there's a universality in Shakespeare, right? And and yeah. and maybe one of the reasons that it is so effective is because because of the rhythm, right? And there's a rhythm in battle too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, again, I, I'm, I'm saying this from the outside, Billy, but I'm sure that, you know, you can tell us that there's a rhythm in fighting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know? No, absolutely. And, I, and I, I think to your point, no, there is, there is, a, there is, a, there is a, a huge dollar amount attached to preparing soldiers for war and almost none to their reintegration to society. And I would, I would say that 
the tougher community to crack would be the active duty because uh, thinking that you may have to deploy again, you know, you, you compartmentalize your feelings and you can't, or you choose not to uh, acknowledge them because you may have to go and, and make decisions uh, that are, that are, that are emotionless or emotion free. Um, and so as you leave uh, and you, you're able to, you know, you have these, these boxes full of, of trauma that, that releasing them through um, the reading of, of classical work, I think is, is good because you can, you know, you can blame them, you know, you can blame the tears on, on the words um, when they're really obviously because, you know, your friend got shot in the face and you saw, you know, oh my God. Another way to do this is is writing, and, and again, Billy and I were talking about, Billy, you've done just your own writing, writing your, down mm-hmm. your stories. Have you ever considered what, how you would use these stories? Is it is it because you just need to get it down on paper and they're yours? Is it something that you would take and say, I could make a story out of this and I would like to do a one-man show based off my stories to be able to, uh, to convey them? Have you, uh, what do you use them for? I mean, I, I initially, I, you know, um, Tammy Ryan, um, um, I, I'm not sure if, if you guys know, she'll play right here in the city. Um, I only got into writing because our daughters were in Girl Scouts and uh, she was writing a play about females in the military and asked me some questions. And I told her about a word that we use to describe when somebody, you know, we have prepackaged meals, MREs, mm-hmm. and um, they're sealed astronaut food. And people will rip them open and take the one or two good things out and then leave the rest. And we call that rat fucking. And so I was telling Tammy the story and I was like, blah, blah, blah. They used to rat fuck the child. And uh, she was like, what? So she was the one who was like, write down these things. So the only reason that I started to write was because um, my thesis director was like, you need a thesis. And so you better write the story. Um, And that was the longest one. And to your point, now I write to hopefully so that other you know younger veterans will see that it's okay to do it um and and every story can be told um and your perspective matters and so i will do it and hopefully you can do it as well right and i mean there's like you know there there's so much to unpack there right like there's Mm -hmm. there's so much damage created by the system that's like rife with sexual hostility towards women recruits right it turns a blind eye to the accomplishments of minorities i mean there's just so much going on that 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 you're trained to just put into a little box mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're coming up on time here i want to uh loop this back and say if you were gonna go see one play about veterans in shakespeare which one would you which one would you suggest wow what a great question wow um how I to would, choose how to choose how to choose Gosh, I, I think maybe Henry the Fourth Part One. I think it would have uh, to be it, it, it it's it's a, a there's a lot a, there, we haven't actually mentioned the character of Hotspur, who is one of Shakespeare's most famous warriors, and the dichotomy in that play about you have the, Hotspur and Falstaff are sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. Hotspur is a, a very hawkish and very into warfare, and all about his honor and how honorable it is to fight and blah, blah, blah. And Falstaff couldn't give a shit and is, is all about survival and you know just dealing with the, the day-to-day of being, when it comes to soldiering, just getting, you know, you know he says, uh, discretion is the better part of valor in which I have saved my life mm-hmm. because he faked his own death to, you know, survive a battle so and, and there's there's just a lot in that play that concerns well, veterans and so i mean maybe that one but there's so many well and i just love the way that ends right like i mean you see the change in prince Hal when he becomes a soldier but you mm-hmm. know it ends with him killing hotspur you know and hotspur says you know no percy thou art dust and food for and he dies and Hal says for worms brave percy fare thee well great heart you know mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. That that is exactly what you know. It's like what Billy was saying. You know, you see your friend shot in the face. Yeah, it's a real visceral moment, and then Shakespeare immediately undercuts it with the comedy that we were talking about before. Right. Because while that's happening, we think Falstaff is dead, and then Hotspur dies, and immediately Falstaff jumps up and is like, "Ah, psych." <laughs> Billy, if you had one, you have one that you 
I mean, I, I, I love Henry V. I, I can't argue that um, because mm-hmm. of, because I think that, you know, like, like you were saying, I think Owen, you know, he isn't just a soldier. And I think that that, that aspect alone speaks to, you know, most veterans, not only being soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. um, and because in my, you know, that been that, that Christmas day speech, um, the, the once more through the breach, you know, it, 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 I think it reminds and, and can can translate to a veteran um, those moments that they have had that 10% um, and how to deal with maybe, you know, the civilian population who doesn't understand um, what they might be going through. Um, um, so I, I would I would recommend that. I would Henry the fourth part one, that's the one. If you're interested in the politics of war, like mm-hmm. how the how the shit hits the fan, look at Julius Caesar. Oh. Yep. Well, I mean, we could go on and on. Coriolanus, as I've said, but it's right. interesting that we mentioned Henry the Four, Henry the Fourth, Part One, and Henry the Fifth. They're linked plays. Yeah. Right. I mean, the the Richard the it's part of a cycle that begins with Richard the Second, goes through Henry the Four, One and Two, and then Henry the Fifth. So they're they're you know he's writing about the same stuff. History. And it's it's so funny because you know if you think if you if you if we say that you know every 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 storyteller has has you know built off of Shakespeare it's kind of like saying you know what's your favorite kind of water because Mm -hmm. they're also good in different ways and they serve Mm -hmm. different purposes so I would say start wherever you want and and just keep going yep I think that's I think that's the best thing that that could be said about that yep one thing I want to also end on here is um is a is a I don't know what you would call it so so Tim O'Brien wrote the things they carried oh this up all right yeah now you know you see Shakespeare you're like yes I want to I want to speak the speech of uh, of Prince Hal I want to you know the Crispin Day speech you could just sink your teeth into it sometimes you're reading a book and you get to a chapter and you're like this is a this is an incredible monologue um and I I highly recommend especially to you guys and, and our audience that if you've not read how to tell a true war story the chapter within this book and read it like a monologue it's it's it, it blew my mind uh, to read it that way. And it's something that I've always learned, like, I want to memorize that chapter and perform it on stage because the way that it's written is very much just from this guy's perspective on something watching uh, watching his friend uh, die, um, but also just like humping it um, and his experience. And it's it's uh, it's something that, that wasn't Shakespeare, but my mind always goes to it when I think of performing something that has that's like a veteran telling his story is that particular chapter um but i want to thank you guys so much for coming on to the scuttlebutt uh for the bardcast for sharing your time for billy thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your time with us today um and congratulations on your retirement that's that's awesome and exciting and hopefully uh i'd love to have you back on whenever you finish writing or if you're going to be doing some things with that we'd love to hear more about it um And the broadcast, you guys are doing sort of a semi part two to this within within your space, right? Yeah, we are. We're actually going to do military Shakespeare uh, for our episode that drops on Friday. Nice. So Friday, what date? Friday the the second of April. Literally, like two days from now. <laughs> okay. So this is going to come out. This is going to come out after that. So this is sort of our part two to your part one. Um, so that's great. Uh, so if you guys have an intro, we'll say this on the side. Pump pump the scuttlebutt. I'll make sure to pump you guys too. We promise we will. We absolutely will, of course. To our audience, if you like this this episode, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. Make sure you check out the Bardcast. Uh, You guys release episodes every... Every two Every every other Friday. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And uh, thank you for watching The Scuttlebutt. We hope to see you on the next episode. (laughs) 